Every once in a while, I, I think it's important to uh, step back as a church and kind of look um, at, from a bird's eye view of things that are important to us as a church. Uh, and since this is the last Sunday of the year, what, what better Sunday to do that than now? It's kind of like, almost like the State of the Union address here that we got going. Uh, but uh, I wanted to just kind of take a step back from Psalm 119 today and uh, preach to you, talk to you about things that are critically important to us as a church. All right? If you're a guest here today, this is not what we normally do. Um, we usually open a book of the Bible and go to chapter and verse and see what it means and then encourage you to apply it to your life. And we've been doing this in Psalm 119 now. I think for a couple of years um, with James sprinkled in between there. Uh, and so normally we, we do that, but today uh, we're going to do something a little different. Next Sunday, by the way, uh, well, this past Sunday we finished the middle third of Psalm 119. Next Sunday we're going to begin our New Testament book study in Philippians. And then when we're done with that, we'll come back to Psalm 119 and conclude that sometime in the next decade, all right? So, praise be to God. But occasionally, like I said, I think it's important to remind you of what we do here at Sun Valley Church, why we do it. So today I'm gonna to cover some of the things that, that you may have heard if you've been through our Sun Valley Church basics class. This is some of the introductory information that we want people to know, that we want all of you to know. Some of you have not been through the basics class we would encourage you to do that. Some of you haven't been through that class because you've been members here forever. And uh, we, uh, those of you who came with us from Westside Baptist when we planted this church almost 17 years ago um, didn't have to go through that class. But if, you're, if you've become a member here in the past 15 years or so, you've been through the basics class and you will maybe remember a little bit what I'm about to tell you. This is just a reminder for you but if you have not been through the basics class, uh, then this will be uh, something that will be hopefully encouraging to your soul. So why do we do what we do at Sun Valley? And why do we do it how we do it at Sun Valley Church? And there are reasons for that. Every sermon that you hear preached from this pulpit, every song that we sing, every word of counsel that's given, uh, whether formal or informal, every conversation that you may have in the lobby or in your small group or maybe even in your car on the way to church or the way home after church, uh, something is happening um, and we want it to be uh, something intentional. A, a culture is being cultivated at Sun Valley Church in all those things that I just mentioned. And we want it to be an intentionally a focused effort to establish a particular culture. Uh, I don't know if you could do this, but if I were to ask you, what are the words emblazoned on the wall in metal letters in the lobby, if you could tell me what they are. Uh, but those are the three distinctives that we want to keep front and center in your mind, in everybody's mind who comes to this church. And that's what I'm going to talk to you today about. These are the things that kind of guide our practice as a church. This idea of being gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded. This is something that we want you to always be thinking about, always be experiencing at Sun Valley Church. 
we have established a purpose statement, if you want to call it that. We, we don't like talking about a purpose statement because we think the Bible gives us a pretty clear purpose for existence. But we have one, and I think it reflects the biblical mandate for every church. But Sun Valley Church exists to glorify God by creating an authentic Christian community that is gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded. That is what we want Sun Valley Church to be about. That's what we want you to experience when you come here. We want you to grow in those distinctives. So I'm going to take those one at a time, and this will be the outline of our sermon. First, gospel-centered. Second point, grace-driven. And then thirdly, mission-minded. And those, that outline is in your bulletin, I believe. So what does it mean to be a gospel-centered church or a gospel-centered person? Well, every single church uh, has a functional center, that thing that drives their identity, that thing that kind of helps them decide what they will and won't do, what they will and won't be about, like why we have certain programs and not others, why we have our worship service the way it is, why is our mission's philosophy the way it is. Uh, that, that is the functional center of our church. What is that thing? We want that thing to be the gospel. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to do the things we do because that reflects the gospel. We want the programs that we, that we focus on to be reflecting of the gospel in your life and the life of this church. Sometimes that center, that functional center is not too clearly defined, which is why I'm defining it for you now. And other times, what a church or an organization may say is their center really isn't their center. But every church has one of these functional centers. We want ours, we want our aim to be gospel-centeredness. So that is the aim of our church. This means that we want the gospel to, to shape the character of this church, shape the relationships within this church. Um, like you heard just a moment ago from Rick, that we want to be in step with the gospel as a church. As Paul wanted Peter and everybody else that he preached to and discipled to be in step with the gospel, Sun Valley Church wants Sun Valley Church to be in step with the gospel. Everything we do, whatever we don't do, we want those reasons to be based on the gospel. In order to be in step with the gospel, we need to know what the gospel is, right? Wouldn't that be a good place to start? What is the gospel? The gospel, which simply means good news, right? That's what the word means, is that the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to redeem rebellious people and turn them into children of God without offending or compromising God's holiness or his justice. Let me read that again for you. The gospel is the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to redeem rebellious men and women and make them children of God without compromising the holiness and justice of God. It's a mouthful, but what this means is that God just can't sweep your sins or my sins under the rug and say, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. If God were to do that, he would cease being God. He can't just look the other way or sweep your sins under the rug. He has to deal with your sins in a holy manner, in a just manner. And here's where the gospel becomes clear to us. We begin to see it for what it is. This is the central message of the book that we hold in our hands from Genesis to Revelation. 
It's about the gospel. It's about what I'm describing. The gospel is the good news that God delivers us from the penalty of our sin once and for all by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because of who Jesus is, the eternal son of God, and what he accomplished on earth, his perfection and his dying for your sin and mine is what the central message of the gospel is. It's the good news that God continually releases us from the penalty of sin and at the same time delivers us from the power of sin. The gospel addresses both of those things. The penalty that you owe because you're a sinner, that I owe because I'm a sinner, and the power that sin has over your life. The gospel deals with both of those things. And so the gospel is not just a means of our, our salvation, which is front and center in our thinking, but it's also a means of our transformation, becoming more like Jesus. This is what the gospel does. It saves you and sanctifies you. It does both of those things. It's not just what makes us right with God. It's also what frees us to delight in him. This, this means that the gospel is for both the unbeliever, so we preach the gospel. We tell them that they're sinners, that God is holy, that they need to turn from their sin and embrace Christ Jesus and what he has done and who he is. And at the same time, it is for the believer to teach them that they can actually conquer sin in their daily life through the power of the gospel. So the gospel is for everybody in the room, whether you're saved or not. We want to keep you We'll keep that in your mind. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul tells the Philippian church, Christians, by the way, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul said that, what he meant was not to work for your salvation. That's impossible. You can't do that. But to work out your salvation. That means to work the gospel into every single nook and cranny in your life. Have it affect everything, your job, your money, your marriage, your relationship with anybody, your children, your boss, your employees, whatever. The gospel should affect all those things. This is what work out your salvation with fear and trembling means. That's what we want it to mean here. We want Sun Valley Church to work out our salvation in everything we do. Base it on the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther rightly said that as sinners we are prone to pursue God in one of two ways. Either a religious way or a gospel way. This is Martin Luther talking about this. Everybody approaches God in one way or another. In a religious way or in a gospel way. I've asked Rick and Amy uh, Lyon to stand and read for us the difference between the two. There's a little uh, thing they're going to go through now. So if you could stand and read that. Listen to the distinction they make between the gospel approach to God and a religious approach to God. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion says that if we obey God, he will love us. The gospel says that it is because God has loved us through Jesus that we can obey. Religion says that the world is filled with good people and bad people. The gospel says that the world is filled with bad people who are either repentant or unrepentant. 
Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good and moral person. The gospel says that you should trust in the perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who will ever live. The goal of religion is to get from God such things as health, wealth, insight, power, and control. The goal of the gospel is not the gifts God gives, but rather God as the gift given to us by grace. Religion is about what I have to do. The gospel is about what I get to do. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. The gospel sees hardship as in life as sanctifying affliction that reminds us of Jesus' sufferings and is used by God in love to make us more like Jesus. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I have done enough to please God. The gospel leads to a certainty about my standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus on my behalf on the cross. Religion ends in either pride, because I think I am better than other people, or despair, because I continually fall short of God's commands. The gospel ends in humble and confident joy because of the power of Jesus at work for me, in me, through me, and sometimes in spite of me. Isn't that a wonderful distinction? So how is it that you approach God, Sun Valley Church? Do you approach him in a religious way, in the way that Rick was reading, or in a gospel way, the way Amy was reading? Our hope, our prayer, our endeavor is that your approach to God will be in a gospel way, that you will be gospel-centered people. We want to be a gospel-centered church. How are we going to cultivate this kind of environment here at Sun Valley Church? How are we going to get you to think gospelly, if I can say that, instead of religiously? I've got some ideas. First of all, we will preach and teach the gospel to everyone, both believers and unbelievers, since it applies to all. Those who don't know Christ who are, remain in their sin and those who know Christ who are trying to conquer their sin. The gospel applies to both groups of people. And so we'll preach it to everybody continually, weekly. You'll see it in our liturgy, by the way. When you walk in here, we remind you of the holiness of God. Have you caught that yet? That every single Sunday we remind you of the holiness of God either through the the scripture reading, the prayers or the songs we sing, which brings us to the point of confession and repentance because we realize we're not holy. So you see the gospel right up front here when you come to Sun Valley Church. God is holy. We are not. So we confess in humility our sin and ask God to turn our sin, turn, help us to turn from our sin. So we're going to preach the gospel to everyone. Secondly, we're going to learn to read the whole Bible as the whole gospel. We're not going to categorize the scriptures and say, well, that was Old Testament. No, we're going to see from Genesis to Revelation the gospel saturating the entire scriptures. We want to learn that Christ is seen in the Old Testament sacrifices. We want to see the gospel in Genesis. We want to see the gospel in the story of David and Goliath. Do you realize that's about the gospel? Not about being courageous in trouble. It's about Jesus saving people. 
And we want you to see that in all of Scripture. And so from beginning to end, the Bible is about a story of redemption. And we're committed to reading that story and seeing that story in the Scriptures every time we open this book. By the way, I'm teaching a Sunday school class on the Old Testament history of salvation. And for, for someone who may not be familiar with this kind of dialogue, that title itself is a little contradictory in your brain, isn't it? The Old Testament history of salvation, what do you mean? Well, there's an invitation for you to come. And I will tell you what it means today here in about 45 minutes. Next, to cultivate this gospel-centered culture of Sun Valley Church, we're going to see the whole world through the lens of the gospel. And we want you to try and practice this daily. We believe the Bible is our only and ultimate authority. And because the whole Bible is the gospel and our understanding of the world should be impacted by our view of scriptures and how to address the needs and problems that we will face in this culture in which we live, we will use the Bible to do so. We don't believe that our self-esteem problems are solved with self-help books. We're never going to teach you or refer you or put on our bookshelf a secular self-help book or even a religious one for that matter. We're going to put gospel-centered books on our bookshelf and recommend those to you. We don't believe that our addictions are solved in popular programs or secular counseling. We believe it's solved in a relationship with Christ found in his word. And so we're going to remind you of that to look at the, at the world around you through a lens of the gospel. And then we're going to see our neighbors through the lens of a gospel. It's easy to not do this, especially when they blow their leaves into your yard in the fall. But we need to learn to see all of the people in our lives through the lens of the gospel. Martin Luther said that your neighbor is a burden until you understand the gospel. Then they become a blessing. Think about that. What's going to change the way you view your neighbor? Here's the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what your neighbor is or what he or she does, if you view it through or view them through the lens of the gospel, it changes everything. Gospel-centeredness is what we want for Sun Valley Church. Secondly, we want to be a church that's grace-driven. A grace-driven church. What does it mean to cultivate a culture that's grace-driven? Well, I'm going to try to explain this concisely. It means that we live with an understanding that real transformation is based on what God has done, accomplished in Christ Jesus, and not what we as individuals do to earn his favor or to earn the favor of people around us. What drives your transformation is grace. We want you to learn to think that way and live that way. And this approach to life being grace-driven has massive implications for how you live on a daily basis. And it affects three important relationships. First of all, your relationship with God. The gospel takes us from an impersonal boss-employee type relationship with God where we work to earn his favor. If I do a good job, I might get a raise. He might smile at me when I walk past him to a grace-driven, 
personal father-child relationship with God. This is what grace does. From a self-centered, fear-based relationship that requires you to act morally to a love-based desire to delight in God. This is what grace does for our relationship with God. Secondly, being grace-driven produces a new way of relating to ourselves, not just to God, but to ourselves. Do you realize you have a relationship with yourself? That's not actually supposed to sound weird. It's reality. You have a relationship with yourself. How do you view yourself? What is your self-perspective? Being grace-driven frees us to no longer base our own identity on what other people think of us. And that is what drives 95% of human self-perception. What do other people think of me? That is not a grace-driven approach to living. Or even what, you, what do you think of yourself? Here's my answer to that. Who cares? What others think of you and what you think of yourself? But what does God think of you in Christ is the more important question better way to think of it. Um, do you know that God has a divine love for you? The gospel saves us from having an inferiority complex. Oh, poor me. I'm Eeyore. I'm horrible. You know, how does the gospel save us from that? Because Christ sees you as beautiful and valuable in Christ. You, believe it or not, are one of God's prized possessions. Think of this with me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus described us in John 6, in John 10, and John 17, multiple times in each of those chapters, as gifts from the Father to himself the Son. That's how Jesus describes us. In those verses, in those chapters. Now continue to think with me. Why would God the Father give you as a gift to his son? You, measly you. Why would he do that? Evidently, he thinks a lot of you. <laughs> Evidently, he thinks you're pretty special. You know that in eternity past, this is how this happened. In eternity past, the father desired to demonstrate his divine, eternal, infinite love for his son. And this is how he did it. He was going to create a group of people and give them to the son that would worship and serve him eternally. That's where we get the idea from, from scripture of election. He has elected a group of people to save them so they'll worship and praise and serve Jesus throughout eternity. And that includes you and me if we're in Christ. So, you are God's best attempt, if you're in Christ, you are God's best attempt to demonstrate his infinite love for his son. Okay, those of you who have people in your life that you love, how do you demonstrate that love for them? There's different means, but if it's a gift, what do you do? Do you buy them a used pair of shoes at Goodwill? Probably not. You'd probably go buy them a new pair of shoes. Do you buy them a watch that's broken that you found in the street, been run over a couple times? You, do, I mean, do you get that and say, oh, here, honey? <laughs> no, you go buy them a watch that works. This is the same idea 
that you need to think of if you're going to relate to yourself in the biblical manner. You are God's best attempt to demonstrate the Father's love to the Son. That removes any inferiority complex that you may dabble in. But grace also keeps you from having a superiority complex. Why? Because you're saved by grace. You're not saved because you're slick. You're not saved because you're smart or rich or popular. You are saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourself. That eliminates superiority. You, you, you aren't superior. I'm not superior to anybody. Grace says so. God says so. So there's a wonderful balance in relating to myself between inferiority and superiority. I'm living a grace-driven life. Third, being grace-driven produces a new way of relating to others, obviously. If it, if it changes how you relate to God and how you relate to yourself, it will obviously affect how you relate to other people. You won't be lording it over people. You, don't, you won't be living like you think you're better than them or worse than them. You're not going to be overly dependent on them, but you're also not going to lord it over them. You're co-equals in Christ. This is what a grace-driven mindset does. We, we don't receive our sense of self-worth from the approval of people. We aren't, I don't need your approval. I'm saved by grace. So how are we going to cultivate this kind of a culture at Sun Valley Church? Well, we're going to, we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We're going to encourage you to get out of bed every morning and remind yourself why you're saved and how you're saved. Every morning, Martin Luther again said that he preached the gospel to himself every single day. To remind himself of the grace that's involved in our relationship with God and each other. And so, as we preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another, we're going to repent of things that we have functionally trusted in, like our appearance, you know, or the appearance of my home. I can't invite you over because my home's a mess. Who cares? We're in Christ. We're going to repent of things that we have functionally trusted in, like money, friends, status. I must feel good about myself, so I've got to have more money than you, or drive a better car than you, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as the world would tell us. We're going to repent of those things, because that's not the gospel. Secondly, we're going to live as new people, not nice people. We want to be nice, for sure. Um... But getting, being nice doesn't save you and doesn't improve your status with God. I know a lot of people who are nicer than you. And I know way more people who are nicer than me. We're not going to lay all of our hope on being nice. Being grace-driven is going to drive us to being new people, not nice people. There's an amazing phenomenon that happens with rocks. You, you take a rock and you leave it as it is and you take another one and you put it in a rock tumbler and you shine that thing up. It's really shiny. You throw them into a lake, they both sink. It's really weird. 
The shiny one and the ugly one. They both sink. See, our goal, friends, isn't to accommodate one another's expectations. Our goal is to be transformed at the deepest level in our souls. We want this, we want to be loving people, not just because we do loving acts, but because we're actually loving people. We want to be new people. If, if we just aim for some external behavioral change, it cheapens the cross. Why did Jesus die? So that you'll be nice? No. So that you'll be new. Next, if we're going to be a grace-driven people, we're going to believe the gospel can change anyone. Have you ever caught yourself saying, oh, they will never come to Christ? Not that person. Are you kidding me? Then you just need to go look in the mirror. Why are you in Christ? <laughs> you are not the world's shining example of you know, goodness, are you? If you think that, then you probably need the gospel. No. The gospel can change anyone. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace is what saves us, not <laughs> being cool or having the right things, or having the right amount of money. You remember what Timoth uh, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16? He goes, I'm the chief of sinners, and Christ saved me. I mean, we all know people who we can hardly believe are actually believers, right? That guy? That reveals our lack of understanding of the gospel when we think like that. Because we are all sinners saved by grace. No one is in Christ because of something they accomplished or something they had. Jesus came to save the unrighteous. Next, if we're going to have a grace-driven culture, we must see grace, not guilt, energize transformation. Grace, not guilt. And this was a big one for me. Even after I got into ministry, I think I was just figuring it out by the time Sun Valley Church started and into the first couple years that actually grace is what transforms people, not guilt. You know how tempted I am because of my legalistic background to get up here and guilt you into change? I mean, it is a miracle of grace that I don't do that on a weekly basis. Guilt never changes anybody. It might adjust your behavior until you forget about the guilt-driven sermon, which would be about before you get to the car. No, the only thing that changes you, friends, is grace. The reason you don't give like you should and love like you should and serve like you should is not because you haven't received enough guilt. It's because you're not familiar enough with Christ, the giver of grace. If you knew Jesus... <laughs> no one would be concerned about how much you give or how much you serve or how much you love your, your family. This all happens because you know Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, the more this happens. We must see grace, not guilt, energize transformation. And then, of course, we must live with one another, family, friends, children, you know, small group members, etc., in grace-driven grace relationships. 
And this, this kind of relationship commits us to defining our relationships and solving our problems by the gospel. I, I don't, uh, or I shouldn't, try to win an argument by speaking louder than you, right? We, we should come to a place of agreement because of what the Bible says about what the Bible says and teaches about grace in each other's lives. So I'm not trying to conform you to my pattern of behavior that I think is right, or you trying to conform me to your pattern of expectations, but the gospel does that. You know, I'm personally not a big fan of alcohol. I don't think it's right to get drunk. In fact, I know it's wrong to get drunk, but I could care less if you have a, a beer. It doesn't bother me in the least. Whereas 20 years ago, I would question your salvation if you were drinking. That is not grace-driven. Satan is going to do everything in his power to make us focus on each other's expectations and not live according to the clear instruction of grace in Scripture. And we're going to fail occasionally. Keep that in mind. We are human after all fallen with our patterns of sin that the Holy Spirit thankfully is changing by his grace. Um, but we're going to fail from time to time. But effective ministry is not dependent upon the elimination of failure, but being able to thrive in the midst of failure. And so when I fail you as a pastor or a friend, you can extend grace to me and accomplish what Christ has for us as a church and vice versa. We need to be a grace-driven group of people, gospel-centered and grace-driven. And by the way, these are all connected. Thirdly, mission-minded. Mission-minded. What does it mean to be mission-minded? Well, theologian Christopher Wright, he's a contemporary theologian, wrote this. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but that God has a church for his mission. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Do you hear the importance of that statement? See, God didn't invent the church to keep Christians busy. That's not why we have church. The church is designed by God as a as a agent of accomplishing his mission to seek and save the lost that's why god invented the church so it is not so much that god has a mission for his church but that god has a church for his mission and his mission is to save people and we're either joining him in that mission or we're not. Being a mission-minded church draws us to join Christ on his mission. Jesus said in John 15 as he was praying to his father that he came to accomplish the mission of the father and now he's turning that mission over to his disciples, you and me. Jesus is no longer here. He's in our hearts He's in this fellowship and spirit, 
But he's not on this planet. He has left you and me with the assistance of the Holy Spirit to accomplish why he came in the first place. To seek and save the lost. And being on mission has two realities. One is the church was made for God's mission to seek and save the lost. And the other is also true, and that is the, the church itself is a mission uh, in that God is constantly and consistently working in the lives of Christians to transform them and to re reflect the character of God in Christ. So the, both of those concepts of mission are important to keep in view. That God has saved us, that God has saved us to seek and save the, the, the remaining lost. But yet the mission here is to help you grow in Christ, to help you love your brother and sister, to help you obey your parents. It's, it's a mission in that sense also. Like the old Spanish mission, come here and we'll bind up your wounds. Come here and we'll feed you. Come here, we'll encourage your soul. So that's one way to view the mission of the church, which is accurate. But the other is also we are on a mission, God's mission. We need to keep both of these things in view clearly and in balance. If we forget that God is actively working in us to change us, we can be consumed with being on mission. We want to reach the world, and so we're going to do whatever we can to reach the world. How about big-time wrestling with the elders on the stage? They're into that. The world's into big-time wrestling, I hear, so let's have some wrestling up here. You know, or pig chasing, if you live in that culture. No, we can't become like the world. We must go reach them for sure, but if our focus is, let's just go reach the world and do anything we can to reach the world, we lose the fact that God's actually transforming us as a people. And if all we do is focus on us, like, oh, are you being loving? Are you being kind? Or, you know, are you growing up? We turn into a bunch of navel gazers. It's all about me. And so we must keep a balance of this outward mission of reaching and and joining Christ in his mission to save the lost and ministering to one another's needs here in this building and in your small groups. The balance is critical. It's what it means to be mission-minded. So our expectation as a church is this, as we become more gospel-centered and live lives that are driven by grace, we will naturally become mission-minded people whose focus is on God's mission to advance his kingdom and encourage each other's spiritual growth. I'm going to end with this. Um, when the Titanic sank many years ago, there was only 20 lifeboats on that enormous ship. Um, and, of course, those 20 lifeboats could not save all 2,300 that were on that ship. But sadly, in, in their hurry to get the lifeboats launched to save the few that those 20 boats would save, they launched them with less than half full each one. So not only did they not have enough lifeboats, the ones they had, they only launched half full of people. And so as the ship sank, 20 lifeboats were in the water, and guess what they did? They all rode away from the sinking ship and the screaming thousands who were in the icy waters so that they wouldn't get overflowed and sunk themselves. There were, all 20 lifeboats did this except one. 
Lifeboat 14. You've heard the story? The captain of that little lifeboat was a man named Harold Lowe. And what he did was he took the people that were in his boat, he rowed out away from the ship and delivered them to the other, ship, the other lifeboats that were waiting on the perimeter. And then he would row back in and fill his boat up again and row back out. On and on this went all night until the screaming stopped. And the newspapers, of course, reported this whole story um, that life, lifeboat number 14 was only to uh, save a precious few, the papers said. And after the sinking of the Titanic, the survivors became famous, famous people. And they were frequently asked what they did to save those who were drowning and only Harold Lowe and those who were in his lifeboat were able to look people in the eye and say that they had decided to get into other boats and help Harold Lowe save a few. This is what we've been called to do, friends. You are in a lifeboat in the midst of icy waters with souls sinking to the eternal abyss and what are we doing about it are we concerned are we mission minded church do we care the mission of Jesus is to seek and save the lost so we want to be a church that's clear about the gospel, that lives by grace, gospel-centered, grace-driven, so that we can be mission-minded people, a mission-minded church. Let's pray. Lord, we are here together in this room today solely because of your grace. Because of you reaching down and plucking us from the icy waters in which you found us and placed us in the safety of a lifeboat named Jesus Christ. I pray that each of us in this room would be people who were committed to the gospel and not just intellectually understanding it but practically living out the implications of the gospel, the grace of the gospel on a daily practice. Father, I, I ask that this daily practice would, would produce fruit of, of more and more people coming to faith. Use us, Lord, for your glory and for the good and joy of our neighbors and our friends and family members who don't know you. Father, bless Sun Valley Church. Continue to bless us. You've been so good to us. Continue to bless us and help us to be more gospel-centered, more grace-driven, and more mission-minded. Send people to us that we might draw them from the icy waters and into 
the security of the lifeboat of Christ. And we'll thank you for it throughout eternity. Amen.